Lord, this morning before we engage you in, uh, in the Word, I want to pray for our local church. I want to pray for St. Paul Episcopal Church and the pastor Gary Herbst. Lord, I want to pray for Gary, knowing firsthand some of the challenges of, of uh, pastoring, just burdened that you would guard his heart from landing in a place where he just does a J-O-B. Pray that you will quicken him week by week as he studies, that you will take him through those difficult periods, those deserts, and that you will sustain him in periods where it's, it's just hard work. I pray that he will not have to be uh, sustained by periods of uh, summer or spring, but that trusting you, he can be faithful in what he's called to do as a pastor and in some ways a gardener, uh, in season and out, that he can be faithful. I pray the same thing for us. pray the same thing for the other Christian churches in our community. But for Gary specifically this morning, I want to lift him up and pray for sustained worship. pray that it finds impact in his home. I pray that his wife and his family see transformation in his life as he spends time with you and time in your word pray that you will guard him from being a pastor and not walking in what he preaches. Two, Lord, I pray for this church, for the Episcopal Church, uh, St. Paul. Whatever way that we could come alongside this church, whether it's just in spirit, in the moments that we're taking this morning to pray for him, or whether there's something tangible, pray that you'll give us view to that and then we'll step out into it faithfully. Maybe if it's just working next to someone who is a member of that church, that we can be an encouragement to them. Lord, we pray for your glory in and through that church. Pray that they don't have seating capacity for all those that want to walk with you as a part of that church. Or two, this morning, we want to pray for a local official. And in this case, this week, we want to pray for Senator Bob Duell. I pray for Senator Duell's, first of all, for his worship. If he doesn't know you, that he will come to know you. If he does know you, that his leadership and his wisdom and his insight into so many decisions I'm sure he makes from week to week will be fueled by worship, guided by truth. We pray that the gospel will be furthered and advanced because of the role that you've given him in our Senate. Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray for endurance, pray for uh, patience, I pray for wisdom pray for insight, pray for an attentiveness that's far beyond what any of us could muster. Pray that the Holy Spirit will speak in spite of us. I pray that paradigms that need to come down will come down. Pray that paradigms that are true will come up and be erected and will be enjoyed. And uh, we just turn these next few minutes over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I told Christy over breakfast this morning... Christy is my wife, by the way. Thank you. I told her over breakfast this morning that this is a He-Man woman-hater sermon. A little story behind that. When I was in the Marine Corps, the troop leader has a a responsibility to train his Marines physically. And it's it's called PT. It's short for physical training. It's not anything high speed. It's just PT. And I had a thing that I I did with my Marines when I was a platoon commander and then later a company commander. And... uh, we tackled the hills around Camp Pendleton. And any of you that have ever been to Southern California, you know that the hills around Camp Pendleton 
are not really hills. They're little small mountains, and they're significant, prominent features. And we would tackle those and run those hills. And we had a name for it. It's called the He-Man Woman Hairs Club. Because you couldn't run a hill like that and be thinking about your girlfriend or your wife. You couldn't run a hill like that and be thinking about ice cream or soft pillows. You had to be, <laughs> you had to be thinking about something manly in order to just get up the hill. So we connected it back to the Little Rascals Club that they had, the He-Man Woman Hairs Club. So we need to make sure that if that's shared with anybody, that's shared in context, because I could just imagine how Greenville would run with that <laughs> and how before long Crosspoint would be the woman-hating church, which is not what it is. This is a he-man woman-hater sermon in that it is going to be hard work for you. I'm warning you right now. We don't do this every week. We do this more often than maybe than some, but this sermon is going to be hard work for you. It's going to be hard work for me, but it'll be a worthwhile work. We're in Hebrews chapter 2, so you can go ahead and turn there. Hebrews has been a challenging journey. I've joked about Hebrews being a good book for preachers to refer to when they're preaching other texts in other books because it's just so heavy and just so challenging. But we've set out to preach verse by verse through the book, and we've been sort of camped out on a paragraph in chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. I don't know if there's a more dense section of Scripture, dense in terms of having this um, ocean of important and deep truths in our Bibles regarding the incarnation of Christ. When I say incarnation, I don't want to assume that, anybody, that everybody knows what I'm talking about. I'm speaking of Christ taking on flesh. This passage is the go-to passage to understand why Christ took on flesh. So I'll read it, verse 14 through 18 together, and we're going to spend the majority of our morning in the second half of verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, this little paragraph follows a section where the Hebrews preacher has been developing this notion of Christ's solidarity with his brothers or solidarity with mankind. He himself likewise partook of the very same flesh that we share. That through death, now that is an important word that we'll talk about here in a moment, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. If he was going to help out angels, he would have become an angel. Think about that for a minute. Now, angels are fallen, some of them. So he certainly could have had a mind to redeem the angels. And if he were to do so, he would have become an angel. Angels don't necessarily have wings, but taking the illustration, the image. He didn't know. He took on flesh because he helps the offspring or children of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted... He's able to help those who are being tempted. I'm going to take just a moment and sort of bring us back into the Hebrews context. 
I don't know that we can overdo this week by week. It's reminding ourselves of what is the forest. We can stop down and study a tree and forget where the forest sits. The Hebrews context is important. This letter is actually a sermon that was written by the Hebrews preacher, likely their pastor, to a little Hellenistic Jewish church. Hellenistic is a term that means that they were Greek-speaking and they lived somewhere in the diaspora, i.e. not Israel, somewhere in the dispersion of the Israelites all over the Roman Empire. So this little Hellenistic church, Greek-speaking Jewish church, likely lived in Rome. And this Hebrew preacher is not with them at the moment, and he's writing a word of encouragement to them. It's not some sort of seminary class or theological discussion group text. It is real truth for real people going through real problems in Rome. This little Hebrew church, we would call it today maybe a Messianic Jewish church. This is an early version of that. They're Christians. They're going through severe suffering in Rome. This is likely under the hand of Nero. All you have to do is Google Nero to become quickly acquainted with some of his atrocities. These guys were staring persecution in the face. Likely, some of their family members had become human torches in Nero's garden. Maybe their mom or dad, brother, sister, grandparents. These guys knew what persecution looked like. And these are the words that the Hebrews preacher is sharing with them. This is the encouragement for this context, that Christ himself partook of their very same flesh and blood. See, the problem with the Hebrews church in this context is they have hunkered down. Over the course of the book, in our journey in there, you'll see more pictures of this where you see the Hebrews church fearful Apparently, their parents and grandparents had stepped out in harm's way at the cost of their very own lives for the sake of the gospel, but this little church had now begun to play it safe. And they weren't listening to God anymore, and they were hunkered down behind closed doors, protecting their flesh. And here the Hebrews preacher reminds them that Christ himself took on the very same flesh. He's made like his brothers in every respect. And then I told you this word was important, that. In the Greek, that word is what's called a henna clause. Henna clauses are important. They're essential to understanding your Bible. That's why I'm really personally not a big fan of the NIV. It's a great Bible for devotional use, but for real study, it leaves out what in our text says that in a lot of cases. I don't know that it does in this case. I didn't look at it. But the NASB and the ESV does a good job of translating in order that's, or so that's, or for the purpose of. That's what this word is here. If someone were to ask you, why did Jesus take on flesh? You could turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, and see two important that's. He took on flesh that, in order that, for the purpose of destroying Satan, first, delivering God's people, Second, and third, that that that's later on in the paragraph there, so that he could become a high priest, a faithful high priest. This passage is about purpose of the incarnation. Clearly, it is the go-to passage for why he became flesh. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you are a believer and follower in Christ, you should know why Christ had to take on flesh. That's why I'm okay with camping out on this paragraph for weeks or months. 
until everybody that is walking with us as a, as, a, as a believer or a family can say, here's why Christ took on flesh. Here's why he had to do this. And here's what happened when he died. What did he accomplish in being flesh and going to the cross and leaving a tomb vacant? It should be Christianity 101, but in most cases it's not. It's going to be foundational for us. This is a go-to passage. Now, I want you to remember for a moment the context. I shared the context for a second, but I want you to remember for a moment these three reasons for his incarnation are provided to people who are suffering at the hands of Nero. I used the illustration a few weeks ago. If we were to visit with one of our families in the far corners of the field and they were experiencing severe persecution, and if I sat down with them and started to remind them of Christ's incarnation, how we might imagine the thousand-yard stare or the glazed-over eyes, like, man, give me something I can use. In reality, this thing that may seem like it's lofty and academic and irrelevant is especially relevant to people going through real problems. These people are being persecuted and they're seeing firsthand the ugliness of the Roman Empire. And in some ways, Satan is looking massive to them. In some ways, Satan is looking huge. And here when he says Christ took on flesh in order that for the purpose of so that he would destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil this is the medicine for a bunch of people that are in a context where Satan looks large. Here he's reminding them that Christ took on flesh and died in order to destroy this one who's looking so big. In order to destroy this Satan who holds the power of death. It's apparently what they're so fearful of right now. Why do you think they're behind locked doors? They saw their mom or grandmom as a human torch in Nero's garden and said, I don't want to die, not for the sake of the gospel. And he's reminding them that the one who holds the power of death has been destroyed. Their fear of death in the next passage there is connected to lifelong slavery. That's what it is when you fear death, slavery. So he's speaking to a bunch of people who are living like they're slaves but ought not be because their parents and grandparents didn't. And he's saying Christ died to accomplish the defeat of this one that you're so fearful of. It is good medicine for these guys in their context. A little step away from the passage just for a moment. I'm going to give you a purpose of this sermon and the next one because they're going to be tied together. I'm not sure, I was trying to think about this, if this sermon is part one of a two-part sermon or if this is... Sermon number one on the same text that I'm going to give sermon number two on next week. So I don't know which is true, but it may be some of both. But there's both this week and next week are going to be connected to these thoughts. What we're going to get at is how this would have been a comfort to them and how it might be a comfort and encouragement to us. How exactly would a reminder of the humanity of Christ connect to our human experience? Does it? Could it? How would a reminder that he destroyed Satan be an encouragement to us? How might it change the way you live? How might it change your lens on life 
in the world? Here's a hard question. How would it affect your expectations of the gospel? How would it affect your expectations of church? This week and next week are going to connect to all of those things. This week and next week are going to deal in many ways with Satan. I don't want in this week or next week for us to be guilty of making too little of Satan's role before Christ. We're going to look at that today. Or making too much of his role before Christ. I want to take a look at what he actually had before Christ took on flesh and he himself likewise partook of the very same things. Before Christ died, I want to know what Satan had so I can know what Christ actually achieved in his incarnation and his death and his resurrection. I was thinking about this. You know, bullying is in the news a lot right now. If you hear about a bully that's brought to justice, you're like, yeah, because we can all think to our own examples where either we were bullied or we saw somebody bullied and we're like, yeah, man, I'm glad you're brought to justice. It brings a certain amount of satisfaction hearing that a bully's brought to justice. But I'll tell you what brings a lot of satisfaction is when you come to know the details of the bullying. You come to know exactly how he bullied. You come to know exactly how he's brought to justice. Then you're like, ooh, yeah, justice is sweet. That's what these two sermons are going to be this week and next week. It's a good close look of the bully, what he had, what power he had, and what was taken from him. And justice is all the sweeter. So, coming back to our text to unpack it a little bit more. Unpacking continued. He identifies the devil as the one who has the power of death. Wow. I've been preparing for this sermon for the last few months, studying ahead, working ahead. And after preaching John, I want to just tell you that looking in Hebrews is like, oh man, this is going to be a lob. John is difficult. To preach narratives is just hard. It's just, a lot of guys won't even take on John. I didn't know any better, so that's retrospect for me. But Hebrews, I'm looking at Hebrews, and the Hebrews preacher, he makes these arguments, and then here's his points, and it's just so tidy. It's linear, and I like linear, compartmental. And he makes this argument that's very linear that Christ took on flesh in order that he may destroy the devil, he may deliver his people, and then he may be an appropriate, perfect high priest. I'm looking at that, I'm like, oh, man, that's a lob. And the more and more I studied the Satan thing, though, I don't know that I've had such a difficult few weeks studying because answering this question is hard. What does it mean that he had the power of death? What did he have then that he doesn't have now? We're going to spend the morning exploring that a little bit, but first of all, I want to answer what power Satan doesn't have. What it doesn't mean to say that Satan had the power of death. What it doesn't mean is where I want to start first. God gives life and he takes it away. A couple of references for you. You can jot down. You don't need to turn there unless you really want to. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39. See now that I, even I, am he. This is God speaking. There's no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver 
out of my hand. It looks like God is the one that gives life and takes it away. 1 Samuel 2, 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Okay, so we're going to first of all put Satan in his place before the cross. He didn't have the ability to actually take life. He's not God. God gives life and God takes it away. So we're going to deal with what Satan has, but first we're dealing with what Satan has never had. He has never had the ability to give life or take life away. Another reference that might be familiar to you, Psalm 139, verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. Satan didn't number those days. God numbers the days. One of the most interesting things that we considered as we moved through the Exodus series a few years ago was realizing that it's God that struck down the firstborn of Egypt. For me growing up, it was an angel of death. And then realizing in the actual context of the story, wait a second, it's God that does this. Exodus chapter 12, verse 12 For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. A few verses later, he actually did this. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who's in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Don't say anything about an angel of death. God gives life, and God takes it away. Satan does not have that power. That's not what this means. So if it doesn't mean he has some power that God doesn't have, what does it mean? This morning, we're going to look at four things that Satan had before the incarnation in the cross that are either completely destroyed or are severely damaged through the work of the cross. Four things. First, there's a clue in the next verse in Hebrews chapter 2 where he goes to this next statement that Satan or that Christ took on flesh to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil or Satan. And secondly, to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The first thing I want you to consider is connected to that passage. The reason we have a fear of death is because we have a reason to fear death. If we're not united to Christ by faith, then we're guilty. The first thing that I want you to see that Satan has is he has the role of access into the high court of heaven as an accuser. That's the first thing. He has access into the high court of heaven as accuser. Turn to Job chapter 1. I'm going to give you page numbers when I have them. There are some passages I do want you to turn to this morning, and I'll tell you when I do because I want you to see them. Job chapter 1. We're dealing with this first thing that Satan had, this dominion that he had before Christ took on flesh and died. And I'm going to call these things permitted dominion. Because God was God before the cross as well. 
Satan has never been able to scratch his behind except by permission from the living God. Okay, that's a given. But he had some permitted dominion before the cross. And we're looking at the first of those things. He has access as an accuser. Let's deal with access first. Many of you are familiar with the story of Job, but I'm going to read just a few verses here to kind of get us connected to where I'm going. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed a bunch of sheep, camels, oxen, female donkeys, and he had a bunch of servants. So this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. It's a family that actually got along really well together. When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. Job is golden. He's got this amazing family, and he's offering sacrifices for his family members because it says, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So thus Job is offering sacrifices on the behalf of his family members daily. He's an awesome dad and an awesome worshiper and believer. Now, while Job is off being awesome, in the high court of heaven, listen to what's going on. In an unseen place, chapter 2 introduces some other details. Now, there was a day when Job is being awesome, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them, the high court of heaven. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, huh, have you considered my servant Job? He's awesome. There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is yours in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and reeked havoc on Job and his family. Took away all of his family minus his lovely wife, if you know the rest of the story. Chapter 2 sort of has an instant replay of chapter 1. Here it is again. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come? It's almost an instant replay or a Different version of the same song, we'll call it, or a different verse in the same song, we'll, that's what we'll call it. Same sort of dialogue. Satan presents in the high court of heaven and identifies a target. God gives him permission to go thus far and no farther. First of all, what you want, I want you to see right there is I want you to see that Satan had, had access to the high court of heaven. And if you want to see really what he does best, you can turn to Zechariah chapter 3. I'll give you a page number for that. I said I'd give you a page number for the other ones, and I didn't. 794 of your ESV. Zechariah chapter 3. He-Man Woman Hairs Club. You can do it. Zechariah chapter 3.
Zacharias having a vision of Joshua as the high priest, just like a little heading in our Bible there says, they're handy. It says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to do what Satan does, to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Remember a moment ago I said, Satan has a point when he's doing some accusing. The problem that there's fear of death is you should fear death if you're guilty and you're crossways with the living God. And when Satan stands accusing you of having filthy garments, in some ways, he's right, except that something else happens. When he's standing here accusing Joshua, the high priest, of standing there with filthy garments, he's right. Something else has to happen. Joshua's standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you. I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. And they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. That is an awesome passage. What I want you to see in that passage, though, is Satan doing what Satan does prior to the cross. He's standing in the throne room because he has access. And he's standing there doing what Satan does, accusing Satan is the ultimate dirt digger. The ultimate dirt digger. Anybody have any dirt? Anybody else have any dirt? Well, Satan is really good at reminding you of it. And Satan is really good at bringing that thing up into the throne room. Remember what he did? Remember what he did? Because that's what Satan did before the cross. And you know what? He has a point when he says we're wearing filthy garments. And that's connected to the fear of death. You better fear death if you're wearing filthy garments. The first role of Satan before the incarnation in the cross is the role of access accuser. He has access as the accuser. The second role, turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, page 809. I need to hear some pages turning. Here's some pages turning. We're working. We're running up the hill today. He man, woman haters, you can do it. There are four things we're dealing with. So you got one under your belt. We're going to come back around to all four in light of destruction of Satan. Here's the first thing is he has access as the accuser. Second thing, I want you to see that he is ruler or was ruler of the nations. Listen to this passage. Chapter 4 of Matthew. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was, what we say in the South, hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Unlike Adam and Eve, who are stuffed and burping with Eden fruit... Easily tempted, Jesus hadn't eaten in 40 days. The tempter comes to him and says, 
Turn these stones to loaves. And he answered, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written. He will command his angels as concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it's written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now watch this. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Let this hit you for a minute. What happens next? He shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to them, said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. All these kingdoms and all their glory, I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, he didn't say to him, those aren't your nations. He said to him, be gone, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him. The thing I want you to see right there is I want you to see that Satan was, and I'm going to say was, the ruler of the nation. The ruler of the nations. Think about the times when the nation of Israel goes into a new land. When they leave, for example, Egypt, and they're going into the wilderness, or when they leave the wilderness and they're going into the promised land, it's sort of the same thing happens. When they go, when they leave this place of danger and they go into another place of danger where they're surrounded by the nations, like in the wilderness are surrounded by the inhabiting nations of Cana as they go into Canaan. What does God tell them to do? He says, huddle up around my tabernacle and you'll be safe because that's where I dwell. Huddle up around my holy of holies in some ways and the closer you are to the holy of holies, the safer you'll be. The reason that is is because these nations are owned by Satan and you'll be eaten alive if you go out there and you engage the nations. You huddle up around me until I tell you to engage the nations in a way that I tell you to engage the nations. I want you to see that before the cross, Satan ruled the nations. Third, I want you to see that Satan was, he is to some degree still, but he was the general of an army. Turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. These easy, easy ones. Hopefully, I don't have to give you a page number, but I will anyway. Page 836. Mark chapter 1. Satan is, first of all, an accuser with access. Satan was, second of all, ruler of the nations. Third, Satan is general of an army. Listen to this little count in Mark chapter 1, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. It's Jesus. And they're astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as scribes. Okay, Jesus is bringing the good word up in the synagogue. And immediately... There was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, 
What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him, and they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Now, I had a good conversation with Greg Fields, who taught through Mark, preached through Mark a while back. And he found as he was preparing this, and we were discussing this reality that Prior to Christ's word, prior to the gospels, we don't see any occasion of demon possession where they are cast out. The only thing that's even close is when Saul was plagued by an evil spirit. And you remember who ministered to Saul when he's plagued by an evil spirit. That prefigure of Christ, King David shows up and he plays the lyre and it soothes him and the evil spirit leaves him. And then the gospels show up and there's like demon possession and demon cast, getting cast out all over the place. What we realize as we're considering this is realizing that demons didn't just show up in the gospels. They didn't just like all of a sudden start moving into people. They've been there all along. This story, the way it unfolds here in the synagogue is that this guy with these unclean spirits had likely been hanging out in the synagogue for years he may have gone there just to spend his day at the synagogue sitting there with his unclean spirits. And then Jesus shows up and Jesus starts preaching and this guy's clamoring, the, the, the unclean spirit's clamoring to get out of him. Jesus showing up and preaching with this kind of authority makes me want to get out. That's the demon talking. The demons have been there all along because this general, this army, has been the general of this army ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And demons, just because we don't see this development all through our Old Testament, we don't have to assume that they just pop, show up in the Gospels. They show up in the Gospels because Jesus showed up. They've been there all along, but they show up in the Gospels because Jesus is preaching and authority has shown up. And the war is on for this army that's been fighting over the ages, invisibly. Satan is general of an unseen Army, an army that comes especially visible when Christ shows up. Fourth, Satan is a murderer. Turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 is the passage that we've referred to for years as the revival gone bad. Things were really going well in the chapter. Jesus was preaching and people were grabbing their little pencils to fill out their decision cards, the little pencils that are never sharpened enough. And uh, people are filling out their cards everywhere, but instead of Jesus, stop talking. He keeps on talking, and by the end of this chapter, they're picking up stones to throw at him, but Jesus himself went out of the temple. It's, it's a revival gone bad. And probably where it went the worst was right here in the middle of the chapter, in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus says this to the Jews. You are of your father, 
the devil. They've just referenced themselves being of their father, Abraham. And he says, now, you're not of your father, Abraham, or you'd be operating like Abraham did. You're operating like your real father, the devil. That's not a real encouraging message, I wouldn't expect. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. The fourth thing I want you to see about Satan is that he has been a murderer from the beginning. The beginning that he's speaking of here is going back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. It's in Genesis chapter 3 that a snake sitting in a tree is sitting there with a Ruger 44 Magnum, like big old stainless, like make my day kind of Magnum, standing there, sitting there with this thing. He doesn't have any hands or anything, but he's somehow holding this thing. And Eve comes strolling by, and he tempts Eve with an easy way to get God-like knowledge. He tempts Eve with the opportunity for dominion without obedience, with an opportunity for power without ethics. He encourages Eve to decide for herself what is good and what is evil. So Eve takes and eats And this reference to Satan being a murderer from the beginning, Christ is putting on Satan the role of holding the loaded gun and pulling the trigger. Eve willingly stepped in front of it, and then Adam right behind her. And guess what? Apart from Christ, so has the rest of humanity. That bullet is still flying because Satan's a murderer from the beginning. The bullet is still going. But he himself likewise partook of flesh and blood. As Athanasius said, he took to himself a body to solve the divine dilemma. Christ took on flesh in order to destroy Satan. Now, having presented those four things, I want to take just a moment to unpack what destruction is, and then we're going to go back to those four things. Now, whenever you're running hills, sometimes you have a false peak, and this is a false peak. You say, okay, there's the top, but then you get there and you realize, okay, that's not the top. So this is a false peak. We're not at the top yet. We're going to keep going. Destruction. What does he mean by Satan being destroyed or the one who holds the power of death being destroyed? This is where I've spent the majority of my time these last few weeks and months. This and trying to understand what power he had before the cross that he doesn't have now. Destruction is a very difficult notion. It's a very difficult topic because one passage sounds as if destruction was absolute and complete, and then other passages make it sound like it was progressive, like it's happening over time. And then yet other passages present the idea that it's going to happen in the future, The word here in the original Greek means to render powerless. It doesn't mean to annihilate. He didn't annihilate Satan in the cross through his death. He rendered him powerless, though. The word means to leave idle. Like you've seen a kid play with a toy, a little toddler. He's playing with a toy, and for some reason, or he's playing with something he shouldn't be playing with. Let's let's take that. And then you take it away from him, and he's sitting there with his hands kind of like, what do I do now? 
That's what happened to Satan through the work of the cross. He's rendered powerless. He is left idle. He is made of no effect. That's what it means. Here's a way to understand how to synthesize these passages that seem to present these different thoughts. Christ's reign and Satan's defeat is to be understood like salvation. Your salvation began at a point in time where you trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord. That's the place where justification took place. That place was sure. And then your salvation is ongoing through the work of sanctification. And then your salvation is yet to be in the work of glorification. Think of what has happened to Satan in terms of already and not yet. Already ongoing and yet to be. He is already made idle. He is already rendered powerless. He is already made of no effect. And especially for those who are united to Christ by faith, he has been so completely vanquished through the cross that he shall not prevail against those united to Christ by faith. All those things that he was, he is not to those who are united by faith to Christ. So let's look at him through Christ's incarnation and cross. First of all, as accuser with access. Turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Christ has just entered Jerusalem. There's lots of John left by this point. We were a few years in these last few chapters. But it takes place over a week. Christ has just entered Jerusalem. He's in his final hours before he goes to the cross. Listen to what happens in John chapter 12, verse 31. Christ says, Now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. This now that he's speaking of is not because it's the first part of the week of his Passion Week. He's speaking of what's going to take place at the end of that Passion Week is his cross. He has referred to his hour over the course of his whole ministry as the hour, the time when he's nailed to a cross and he suffers and dies. He's speaking of his cross right here, and he says in that cross, through that cross, Christ will cast out Satan. He will defeat Satan. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world is cast out. Tough, tough truth. Because we see Satan still at work in a lot of ways. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. I need to prepare you for something. Paradigms don't come down easy. And some of you, well, I would say all of us have paradigms that we don't even know we have. And I'm going to speak to a paradigm that many contemporary Christians have that's not a very good one. And it may come crashing down in the next couple minutes. Okay, we're talking about Satan not having access and Satan being cast out and not having the role of accuser anymore. That's what we're talking about. Listen to this passage in Revelation chapter 20. Before I read it, let me tell you this. Most of my adult Christian life, 
I've treated the book of Revelation, in fact, teaching through Revelation as a pastor of this church, early on in the life of our church, the first three chapters is what I would have said was historical. Those took place at a point in time. They're speaking of very specific churches, the letters to the churches in Revelation, seven churches. And the rest of it's yet to be is the way I taught it. And the more and more I'm studying it, I'm saying, wait a second. So much of the book of Revelation is speaking of very real, obvious things that are unfolding right in front of the writer. He's talking about the things that are taking place at the seven hills, which is Rome. He's got a front row seat to much of what we're reading about contextually over in Hebrews. And a good part of our book of Revelation is about things that are unfolding right in front of him. The problem is most of us have been conditioned to understand and read Revelation like Tim LaHaye's books, the Left Behind series. You need to know that the... How many, uh, just curious, how many of y'all have read the Left Behind series? Okay, a, a good many of you. I've read them too. My theology was shaped by that to some degree. The problem is they're books that, that are fictional. They're not the Bible. And they actually take a slant or a... They, they have a take on the end times that are through the lens of a certain view of the millennial reign. And that's what I'm about to read about here. And the Left Behind series views what I'm about to read as a future event. It's, it's a very common contemporary Christian view. It's called premillennialism. It says that Christ is going to reign for a thousand years on earth in the future. And also that things are going to get really crummy between now and then. In fact, the worse they get, the closer it'll get to him coming back. Okay, that's, that's the common view. That's the Left Behind series view. That's the premillennialist view. And that's what I want to call out as a little bit of a paradigm, really a massive paradigm. Revelation chapter 20, listen to this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Now, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, Christ is the only one holding any keys. There's a very strong argument that this angel that's going to take Satan by the nap of his neck is Christ. This being. This being has in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, what I want to offer to you is a different notion. To not read that as a future event, but read that as something that's already happened. And Christ says, now the ruler of this world is cast out. Now means then. When he is bound here, I would say this took place, this Revelation chapter 20 thing took place, I believe, at the cross. There's too much evidence that Satan wasn't bound and thrown out and that he wasn't restricted in a significant way through the work of the cross. For me to think that he's going to have his way in the next 2,000 years or next 10,000 years or however long it is before Christ comes back, to me says that the cross didn't really accomplish very much. It's what I would call a pessimillennialist view. 
It didn't really do much. I would rather have an opti-millennialist view that says maybe we're in his rule and his reign right now. Maybe, in fact, the Hebrews preacher was right when he said that Christ is seated in session now. Maybe the Hebrews preacher was right when he's saying that God is placing all things in subjection to him under his feet means now. And maybe as I've been preaching for the last almost nine years that the gospel is in fact life-changing and transforming and life-giving, maybe it actually is. Maybe we can be opti-millennial and say the kingdom of heaven is advancing now. It can transform Greenville just like it can transform a marriage. It can transform a country. I'll speak to that in a moment. It's expecting that Satan does not have this access that he used to have because he is bound and he is cast out now. There are no more throne room conversations, no more access to God's people. Satan has been so completely vanquished, he shall not prevail against those united to Christ. Paradigms don't come down easy. But if they're not good paradigms, they need to. He doesn't have access anymore. And he also does not have access as the accuser, not for those united to Christ by faith. That picture I shared with you from Zechariah where he's saying, look, dirty garments, dirty garments, the ultimate dirt digger, he can't do that with you anymore because you wear clean vestments. You wear the righteous robes of another. Psalm 103 says this. You don't need to turn there. I'm, I'm on it. I want to share it with you. It's so good. I have so many little tabs in my Bible today. I don't know where I am. We're running up the hill. Psalm 103. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I believe that through the work of the cross, he so far removed our transgressions from us. We're not wearing filthy garments anymore so that Satan has no more role as the accuser for us. You got nothing to say because we're wearing the righteous robes of another. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says this about us. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can approach the throne of grace boldly and confidently because we wear the righteous clothing of another and because the cross was that effective. And because Satan does not have role with access as accuser for us anymore. Anymore. When I asked a few minutes ago if you have dirt, everybody's going, yeah, yeah. Not anymore. As far as the east is from the west. Hear it. Some of you who, who claim faith in Christ, who continue to walk in shame, as far as the east is from the west, you have no accuser anymore. Man, that gives me goosebumps. That's good medicine right there. Secondly, he is ruler 
of the nations no more. Turn to John chapter 12. He is ruler of the nations no more. Now, the passage I read a moment ago where it said, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. I'll give you just a moment of context. Y'all are hanging in there. You're doing good. We're getting close. We can almost see the peak. The context for John chapter 12, Christ has just entered Jerusalem. And back in verse 20 is a profound event. It's so profound that we have to just take a moment to take it in because it's going to help us understand what he says when he says, now the ruler of this world is cast out. Verse 20 says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Now Greeks, they could have been from anywhere in the Roman Empire. We would say they're Gentiles. There were Gentiles who had converted to Judaism and who might have been going to Jerusalem for the feast. But they're Gentiles, as in not God's chosen people. They show up and they came to Philip, Philip who's from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, hey, Phil, we would sure love to see Jesus. And Phil went and told Andrew, Philip is so funny, he can't make a decision on his own. So he goes to find Andrew, ordinary Phil, we call him. Ordinary Phil goes to find Andrew and says, hey, Andrew, what should we do? And Andrew says, well, we need to go bring him to Jesus. So they brought him and told, they brought them to Jesus and they told Jesus. And Jesus like doesn't even acknowledge. It would be like someone walking up to you saying, hey man, I got to tell you something. Or even better, I want to introduce you to somebody. And you're not even acknowledging who they are specifically. You just start with like this little sermon. You're looking off kind of in the distance and you start with a sermon. That'd be weird. That's what takes place right here. Philip and Andrew have a couple of Greeks, and the Greeks are all excited. We get to meet Jesus. This is going to be awesome. So they tell him, hey, Jesus, these guys want to meet you. And Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You want to know why he says it? Because the nations are gathering. He's about to redeem the nations in what he's about to do. The Gentiles are gathering. The far corners are coming to him. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The fruit he's talking about there is you and me, Gentiles. So what I'm about to go do is going to bear a lot of fruit. It's going to bear Gentiles from the nations, just like these two jokers that Andrew and Peter brought up to him. This is a profound moment. And it's in this context, just a few verses later, that he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. In the next verse, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, i.e. through his cross, will draw all people to myself. What he's talking about there is the nations. I, it wouldn't surprise me if he's sitting there looking at those two Greek dudes as he said it. I, through what I'm about to do as I'm lifted up, are going to draw all nations 
to myself because I'm going to take them back from Satan because every nation under heaven is now his and is becoming his and is being placed under his feet and they will be his forevermore. Through Christ's incarnation and death, the safe place is no longer a little huddle around the tabernacle. You better stay close to the tabernacle or the bad guys, the evil, wicked, you know, pagan lands will get you. He doesn't say huddle up around the tabernacle anymore. Instead, instead he says, go ye therefore. Go ye therefore into all the world to every nation, baptizing them, making disciples of them, teaching them to obey. And guess what? Lo, I will be with you always. Man, the safety isn't around the tabernacle anymore because he's gone to the nations. Because the nations are no longer owned by Satan. They're owned by him, Period. So those of you that have a burden for the nations, which we all should have, the families that we either are sending or the families that we have in the far corners of the field, guess what? You need to know they're already Christ. Those don't belong to Satan. He's not the ruler of those nations anymore. He lost that at the cross. Go ye therefore, and lo, I will be with you always. How did he start that conversation? All authority on heaven and earth has been given me. Some of it had been by permission given to Satan before now, but through what I just accomplished on that cross and that empty tomb, all authority has been given me, and now I give it to you. Go ye therefore. The nations are his. Man, that's good medicine right there. The third thing regarding his army The general is defeated through the cross, and his army is in disarray. Turn to Luke chapter 11. This is a pretty funny story. He was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, this just makes me laugh. It's funny. Some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. As if that's not it. Show me something spectacular, Jesus. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Okay, all right, let's just think about this for a minute. If I'm casting this out by Beelzebul, Beelzebub, whatever, let's talk about that for a minute. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, if I'm casting out demons by his power, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? They don't cast out any demons. <laughs> He's making fun of them. Therefore, they will be your judges, as in they don't cast out anything. But if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You hear that? That's why there's no demon casting out before Jesus showed up, because when Jesus shows up, that's when the kingdom of heaven is coming upon them. 
Yeah, they were running for cover. And here's a little parable of actually what's taking place. When a strong man, this would be Satan, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he, that's Jesus, attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and he divides his spoil. Jesus uses a little parable to say, look, what you're seeing me do when I cast out demons is I'm making a chump of the strong man. I'm showing you who's stronger than he. I'm the one casting that out as the stronger man. There was an ancient practice whenever wars took place where different peoples would come up against each other where sometimes they would present their best warrior The story of David and Goliath is a great example of that. Goliath is out there just waiting for somebody to come against him. I was thinking about, I I watched a part of a movie a few weeks ago, Achilles, uh, I think the movie's called Troy. And there's some great fight scenes. Awesome. But Achilles is coming out to fight um, Pericles, I think that was his name. And they're fighting as sort of representatives of their people. That's what Christ is doing here. He is going out as the stronger man, whipping the behind of the strong man. That's what took place in the cross. It's an awesome reality. I want you to listen to a couple of passages from Isaiah. These are amazing. Listen to this from Isaiah 42. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Think of Christ as the ultimate warrior. Now, the thing about Troy, I like Brad Pitt. He's bad to the bone in that movie. I mean, like where he's dancing around Pericles, and he's he got those moves, boy, like, man, he makes it look like music. I'm thinking of this vision that I've got of, 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 of Achilles getting it done, and he looks like a chump compared to this. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. Listen to this one. All right. This is in Isaiah 59. The Lord saw evil and oppression. Okay, just imagine this warrior sees it. And it displeased him that there was no justice. Think about our Lord, our Jesus, whipping Satan's behind, putting him to open shame, as Paul said. Think about what's unfolding here. He sees there's no justice, and he saw that there was no man. There's no warrior. And he wondered that there was no one to intercede And then his own arm brought him salvation. He took to himself a man. His own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak according to their deeds. So will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands. He will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. Man, 
You see your God out there doing battle? He did it in the cross. He did it in the cross, and he put this general and his army to open shame. Here's how to think about the general and his army right now. The war's already been over. It's been over for some time. But their little outposts, they're still fighting. I read about this dude named Hiro, Hiru, Hiru Onada. It's a funny story. At the end of World War II, the war is announced as over. This, this Japanese guy in the Philippines, this is 1945. He doesn't get the word that it's over. He fights for another 30 years. For real, 30 years. He's up in the mountains, the hills of the Philippines, wearing his, his uniform. He's got 500 rounds of ammunition. His rifle's all clean. War's over, Hiro. Man, that's the demons. Be afraid of those demon movies. That's Hero. Man, you're a joke, dude. The war's over. Hey, forever. Got bad news for you, old boy. It's been over for some time. The general's army is defeated, and it is in disarray. And lastly, in regards to murder, murder's tough because it still seems like he does his share of that. But he no longer is in the place of reigning as murderer. Through the work of the cross, it says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. Through the one man, Jesus Christ. He doesn't reign anymore as the murderer. He's holding that big old bad looking, chromed out, make my day, 44 Magnum pistol, and he's holding it at your head, and he pulls it, and it goes, click. And you're saying, oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Man, God's people, he's shooting blanks at you. Man, because life reigns through Christ. Does that give you goosebumps? Man, it does me. Satan was, through Christ's incarnation and death, rendered powerless. He was left idle, like a little kid with no toy. He was made of no effect for those who are united to Christ by faith. One of the hardest parts of preparing this sermon is realizing that there's going to be a lot of objections to this. What about this? What about that? What about this? I'll throw them out there because I've got them too. How then does he still mess with people? How then does he still twist so many things? How then does he create such havoc? How then does John write in 1 John chapter 5 that the whole world lies still in the power of the evil one? Why does Paul call him the God of this world who's blinding the minds of unbelievers? Lots of objections. Well, three brief thoughts and then I'll close it out. First, he's a World War II holdout. He's Hiru Onada, still fighting, feebly, but he's still fighting. He's still got a gun. And now my, parrot, my, my metaphor shifts, my illustration shifts, because he's still, he's still got 500 rounds of ammunition in the mountains. I read one guy that was dealing specifically with this God of this world reference, the 1 Corinthians 4, 4 reference 
And man, he handled it so well. When all the evidence is in, we learn that Satan is the God of an age that was passing away. When it says the God of this world, literally, it means God of this age. It doesn't mean God of the cosmos. Because who's God of the cosmos now? Who's seated in session? Christ. This age and this world are used in an ethical sense, denoting the immoral realm of disobedience rather than the all-inclusive extensive scope of creation, representing the life of man apart from God and bound to sinful impulses, a world ethically separated from God. Calling Satan the God of this world is more a reflection of the condition of this age than the real status of the devil. Chrysostom, one of our early church fathers, comments, Scripture frequently uses the term God, not in regard of the dignity that is so designated, but of the weakness of those in subjection to it, as when he calls mammon Lord. Is mammon Lord? No. <laughs> our, our belly, our God. Is your belly God? No, but you can live in subjection to it. When the church makes Satan the God of this age, it has fallen for one of the devil's schemes, giving him a lot more credit and power than he deserves. When he, ooh, yeah, yes. Man, we're going to lay down our Ebenezer today and say he's not the God of this age. I'm believing what the Hebrews writer said, that he is seated in his session now. Christ is seated in his session now. Satan was put to open shame through the work of, this, work of the cross. He's not the God of this age. He is quite satisfied, Satan, in having anyone believe one of his lies. But the cross, the empty tomb, and Jesus' enthronement change everything. They change everything. Second thought, he's placing all things in subjection under his feet. Why is there still a lot of disparity? Why do you still see a lot of Satan's wiles and work? Because this thing is moving in the direction of the kingdom coming in. The kingdom is breaking in as the people of God move forward, wielding the life-altering, community-changing, world-changing gospel. It doesn't happen overnight. It's sort of like salvation. It happened in a moment, justification. It's ongoing, sanctification. And it is yet to happen, glorification. Think about it as already realized and yet to be. It is a kingdom already won, but a kingdom advancing. And third, and this is probably the most convicting for me, for asking why then Satan still has such influence, maybe possibly, this is hard, maybe possibly it's a product of expecting too little from the gospel and too much from Satan. I'm not saying where I land, premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, because I'm not teaching a system. That's not my role. There may come a time where we deal with those things, but I'm going to tell you this. What I don't like about the views that think that things are going to get worse before they get better is they don't expect much from the gospel. <laughs> they don't expect much from the church. Frankly, they're living a lot like the Hebrews church is, behind locked doors, just trying to kind of hunker down and survive. I'm going to tell you right now, I like the optimillennial view that says, you know what? The gospel is life transform transforming. It can transform your view on life. It can transform a marriage. It can transform a family, a home, a job, a neighborhood, a community, the world. Why in the world do we expect more from Satan in the next thousand, two thousand years than we do from the church and from the gospel? Maybe Satan has his way because we're expecting so little of it, so little of, of the gospel.
I want to be optimillennial. That's what I want to be. I'll share one reading with you short, and then I'll turn it over for the Lord's Supper. This sermon puts Satan in his place. It puts Satan in his place. Listen to these words from a guy named Gary DeMar. The Bible shows us that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. James 4, 7. The only power that Satan has over the Christian is the power we give him and the power granted to him by God. 2 Corinthians 12. Scripture tells us that Satan is defeated, disarmed, and spoiled. Colossians 2.15. He is fallen, Luke 10.18. He's thrown down, Revelation 12.9. He was crushed under the feet of the early Christians and by implication under the feet of all Christians throughout the ages, Romans 16.20. He's lost all authority over Christians, Colossians 1.13. He's been judged, John 16.11. He cannot touch a Christian, 1 John 5.18. His works have been destroyed, 1 John 3.8. He has nothing, John 14.30. He must flee when resisted, James 4.7. He is bound, Mark 3.27. Finally, the gates of hell shall not overpower the advancing church of the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew 16.18. Surely Satan is alive, but he's not well on planet earth. Amen? Let me pray. God, I'm thankful for a chance to stop down and consider what actually happened in the cross. To consider what Satan had, but yet only by permission, but what he lost in the cross. And to sort of bump into what we actually have in and through Christ's work as being united to him by faith, what it means for us. Lord, I pray that this week, while we're sort of gnawing on these things, as we're considering that Satan had a role as accuser with access, that he had a role as ruler of the nations, as general of an army undefeated at that point, that he had a role of murderer. Lord, I pray that this week that we can enjoy that through Christ's cross, as he himself took on the very same things that we have, flesh and blood, that through death, he destroyed, left idle, the one who holds the power of death. I pray that we can enjoy that. I pray next week as we gather on Easter morning, celebrating an empty tomb, that we can enjoy some serious application of this, what this means for the church. How then should we live? Lord, I pray that you will just prepare us for that. I pray that you will speak in spite of me, that you'll speak loudly and clearly to your people next Sunday as we gather, as we are equipped more, shaped more, to be the, the faithful church as you call us to be. We enjoy Christ in his work right now. And in his name we pray. Amen.